0: Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We've got another amazing Sunday edition of This Week in Climate Startups for you today. But first, First. because it's Sunday, we're
1: going to VC Sunday School. Today, I'm asking Jason about non-dilutive funding options, all the different ways that there are actually for startups to get money that don't involve issuing shares, and which of those ways to get money might be a red flag.
0: Yeah, and this is for people who are capital allocators, board members, and especially for founders. This is a crossover topic that impacts everybody. And when you say non dilutive funding, that's going to be in a lot of different categories, including venture debt, most commonly, but also grants, maybe selling your ARR with some of the factoring type companies, as well as uh, kickstarting and Indiegogo and selling pre-selling your product. So it's a very complex topic. And we're going to double click and triple click on all of the nuances. Oh my God, I love this show. And mm.
1: then mm. I talked to Mitchell Hora, the founder and CEO of Continuum Ag, which helps farmers and agriculture companies quantify and improve their soil health, which is huge for feeding the planet and, you know, saving it a tiny bit too. All
0: right. It is going to be a great show. Stick with us. Yes. Why wouldn't you? So good.
2: This Week in Startups is brought to you by Intercom. Intercom. If you're an early-stage, high-growth startup, you can get access to Intercom's Early Stage Academy today at a 95% discount. Join the program today at intercom.com early stage, or email them at startups at intercom.io. Implementing cybersecurity for your startup can feel overwhelming and expensive, but it doesn't have to be this way. Syvatar is a startup-friendly, fully-managed, all-inclusive cybersecurity subscription. Twist listeners get their first two months for free at cyvatar.ai slash twist. That's C-Y-V-A-T-A-R dot A-I slash twist. And Thorn. Thorn empowers people to take control of their long-term well-being with a proactive science-based approach to health. Through a variety of at-home tests, Thorne teaches you about what your body needs and provides the right high-quality certified nutritional supplements for you. To learn more, visit thorne.com slash you slash twist.
0: Everybody, it's time for... I think what's becoming everybody's favorite segment of the week, VC Sunday School. This is when Molly, who is crushing it in her third month as a venture capitalist, a capital allocator, asked me, I'm in my 11th year. I've done okay. Questions uh, that may seem basic. They may seem like stupid questions. They may seem like obvious questions, but none of these are stupid or obvious because the situation is constantly changing in startup land. The market conditions change. The competitors change. There are no dumb questions, Molly. What is the question for this week? Thank goodness. Although it is funny because I was looking back. So
1: when I was preparing for this job back in December, I was keeping yeah. this list as I was reading various books about venture capital of like things I wanted to ask. And I'm looking back at those questions now and I'm like, oh, no, those are pretty dumb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know or, what? You, you not, There's nothing like doing to inform exactly. your next question. And so you're doing meetings. You've done over 50 meetings with founders and you've brought stuff to the investment committee and we've asked follow-on questions and done diligence. So now you're just asking super sophisticated questions. There
1: you go. They're getting more sophisticated, but it is kind of fun. I almost want to, maybe we should do a thing where I'll, I'll send a screenshot of the questions that I had written down. Like, why do you care about the size of the employee option pool? And I'm like, "Oh, dilution, duh, you know, things like that, that were just not obvious to me. Um, However, today's question is also about dilution sort Mm. of, because what I'm hearing more and more about in the industry And then also from some of the founders that I have met with is this question of non dilutive Mm. funding options. So I talked with a founder recently who's doing a hard tech climate solution whose revenue thus far is effectively government grants and other non dilutive funding. Mm -hmm. And I am hearing that there are even options in the marketplace for Mm. startup founders to get non dilutive funding. And so I wonder, like, it's a multi-part question. Yes. So I'll start with sort of on the specific founder question. If someone comes to you and is like, we have revenue that we're realizing as a result of some of this non-dilutive funding, mm-hmm. does that count?
0: Okay. So non-dilutive funding is not revenue in almost all cases. The category of non-dilutive funding contains a number of items. When you say non-dilutive funding, what you're saying is we had money come into the company in some format, we'll get into that in a second, Mm -hmm. that did not result in us issuing shares. So the cap table has stayed the same, but the treasury has added a million dollars. Okay, how does that happen? How does one put a million dollars into the treasury and not change the cap table? One way could be you got a grant. So in Europe, in Canada, and in uh, Australia, New Zealand, the governments want to spark Um, innovation, and they might give a grant to somebody of $100,000 $250,000 to start their company. Mm -hmm. So the company has a million shares, they're owned by the two founders, and the employee option pool. And they have a million dollars in the bank account because the government decided to give it to them. Another way to have non dilutive funding is you could sell a 1000 cars in advance a 1000 phones in advance, you could run a GoFundMe, you could run a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign. That is money coming in for pre-orders. So you have grants, you have Mm pre-orders. Both of these are non-dilutive funding. They're funding the future of the company. You could have people pre-order or pay in advance for software that does not yet exist. So some big company says, we really want this slack thing to exist. We're going to pay 100,000 a year for it. We'll give you $200,000. Instead of for two years, you give us five and we'll fund you to build it, right? So there's three examples, but those are not the common examples. The most common are is venture debt what is venture debt? It's debt. It's a loan. But venture debt is a type of loan that is different in a couple of small ways. It's typically done by a bank that is focused on startups like Silicon Valley Bank, Comerica, et cetera. And what they do is they look at your venture funding and they say, okay, you're raising $5 million for Sequoia. And some known entity, we know they have a good filter process, will allow you to have $1 million in debt, you'll pay interest only for two years, then the principal would kick in, and it just tops your round off with an extra million bucks. And as part of that, we would like to get 10 basis points of equity in the company. So we'll get a little kicker of uh, some equity, and that'll be our upside in addition to the uh, risk we're taking. And so the interest rates can be high over 10%. So they're almost like credit cards, and they can come with covenants. Covenants are: Hey, if you're running out of money, if you don't have sales, we get our money back, et cetera. And it is senior to even the venture capital. So venture capitalists generally don't want you doing venture debt until you've hit revenue, and they only want you to have a percentage of debt to the cash at the bank that is very low, so that the bank doesn't wind up foreclosing on your startup, which they do not want to do. So that's the basic overview. What are the questions? Do you have Molly? So
1: is what. Out of that list, what type of non-dilutive funding might show up as a bit of a red flag? It sounds like venture debt could be. Is it concerning if a company is saying like, oh, yeah, we have all this money, but that
0: money is in the form of grants. Like it's not
1: necessarily recurring. So
0: grants, nobody cares about. It's like it's always a minor amount. It's icing on the cake. It's not even icing. It's like some sprinkles on the icing. So put that out of your mind. Pre-sales can be a very good sign, not because of the money, but because it shows commitment from people in the future. Mm-hmm. Venture debt, there are, I've met a group of venture capitalists who are always suggesting it. Uh, you know, maybe 20% of venture capitalists are like, Hey, we did your series A, we did your series B, you got 10 million. Maybe you should set up 2 million just so you have it in case you need it. Even if you don't draw it down, these things typically cost 50K or 100K to originate. There's an origination fee that helps these folks who are giving venture debt maybe smooth out some of the bad debt that happens, right? Because these are high risk. So, and then there's another group of people who are like, listen, if you're a world-class startup in this hot funding environment, mm-hmm. you don't need it. Mm-hmm. You can always raise more money at a high valuation. So when the markets are cool, venture debt is cool. When the markets are hot, venture debt is not very cool because well, if your company's doing so well and you can raise at a $50 or $100 million valuation from a great venture capitalist, and it's not super dilutive, like the $2 million in venture debt, which people might consider a ticking time bomb at its worst, well, just sell 2% more of the company and have the cash and not have a ticking time bomb, because it's not like the people who invest in the company can just say, oh, you have to buy my shares back for me. With the venture debt, you have to give it back. Right. Right? Now, there are a couple of... So anyway, that's how people look at it. In a, right. in a really slow market, people are like, yeah, let's have the extra six months of runway. In a hot market, they're like, oh, we don't need this. We have... 40 months of runway, 30 months of runway. We we don't need to even bother with this. There is something new that came out Pipe.com. Yes, I was asked about that. Pipe.com and a couple of other people are doing a new spin on an old device, which was called factoring. Factoring is you have accounts receivable coming in in 90 days. You can prove it. We can look at your bank account. You know, let's say you were in the schmatze business and you're selling clothes, right? Yeah, and you, you got everybody on 90. Sorry, you were in the web business? <laughs> I think it's schmatza, right? Schmatza? Uh, Love it. Schmatza. It's a Yiddish for like clothes, for rags. Love when it. I, my office was on 37th and 8th and 9th uh, in the schmatza district where people were running around with, you know, racks of clothes through the streets selling dresses. I kid you not. Um, and so, yeah, like those dresses, you get the money back in 90 days. So you got 100,000 dresses on the streets. They would buy those from you for $90,000. You get the ninety thousand dollars now. When the money comes in, it goes directly to the factoring company, where they mm. have a bank account and some way of, you know, making that ten K. Now that doesn't seem like a lot. You got ninety. You got it ninety days in advance, but that winds up being ten percent in three months. So if you were to extend that ten percent for a year, it's a very high interest rate. Uh, yeah. Some people might even say predatory. But you know, it's sort of like the in the way that a check cashing place is predatory, right? It's It's predatory. It's If you
1: use it, it is predatory. And if you use it poorly, it could get you in trouble.
0: Correct. So people are a little bit, you know, uh, rightfully concerned about that. Now, what Pipe did was super brilliant. Um, I'm not an investor, but a couple of my besties are. Um, That company's done very well. They created a marketplace where you, as an investor, could buy Slack's future-looking revenue, if they have great subscription revenue, for $0.90 on the dollar, for $0.92 on the dollar, and you bid on it. So let's say Slack was in year three and they had five million dollars in ARR. They could go out to pipes, say anybody want to buy this five million in AR. Let's say it's ten million, so it's easier number to work with. Ten million in ARR. Anybody want to buy? And somebody says, "I'll give you nine point two million dollars for that 10 million. million." So here's nine point two million dollars today, and in a year I get ten million. So I got that extra eight hundred k. Somebody says, "Well, you know what? This is uh, easy money. I'll, I'll give you nine point And the little competition happens, and people make the spread. And so. PIPE doesn't actually originate it, they just created a marketplace to do it. Factoring usually a bank does that, and so it's, it's just different financial devices. If your company is growing well, you generally don't need this. If you have world-class investors, you don't generally need to do this. But with some of these devices, a founder will say, "I feel pretty confident and if I get that money, I don't have to dilute the cap table with the because I have pipe.com money coming in." Right. And I can hire 10 more sales executives. And I could spend money on Facebook because those are predictable ads. And I'll, instead of doubling my ARR, I'll triple it. And I don't need to sell $10 million in equity and dilute the cap table 5%. I can just take my next year's revenue now. So it's great. Um, it's great that there's a lot of financial innovation here. You may not realize it, but you've almost definitely used Intercom before. You know, when you visit a website and you get that little chat bubble, Pops up and they say, Hey, you got any questions? That's Intercom. It's the best way to connect with your customers, period, full stop. Intercom's platform helps you engage and support your users through personalized chat like experiences, and over 25,000 companies, startups like yours, use it every single day. Why do they use it? Well, because they want to foster a relationship with their customers. Customers have so many nice things to say about them. Here's a testimonial from Twitter that they just got. It's almost like all websites I visit with that Intercom chat button. I instantly associate them with great customer service, just like Intercom intended. If you're an early stage, high growth startup, and you probably are because you're listening to This Week in Startups, you can get access to Intercom's early stage academy today at a 95% discount. Join the program today at intercom.com slash Early-stage, okay? There's a dash in there, so let me make sure you got it right. Intercom.com slash early-stage, okay? Or you can just email them. Email them at startups at intercom.io. See that? They know support, so they just gave you their email address. Yeah. There was another bank, Mercury, uh-huh. um, which are their advertisers on the show right now. I think they're, they have an ad buy right now, full disclosure. Uh, so Mercury just started their own venture debt program so the more competition there is the better i don't when i see as a board member i just say what are the covenants the covenants if they're broken in a down market i've seen the venture folks extract more value and that's really where you have a problem i had a friend who had this with a high profile bank and they basically wanted their five million dollars back they were going to sell or go public the market tanked and they extracted another like three percent of the company from the founder they said, oh. yeah, we'll, we'll uh, give you two more years interest only, but we want you know $5 million in shares in the company. And he tried to fight them, but the venture capitalists had no more money. So he just got, had no choice but to settle with them. And he was really upset at them for a long time yeah, because uh, he felt they were being predatory. So in a down market, these things can be dangerous. In an up market, they seem like no brainers. And the truth is in between. Just be really careful and play out the scenarios. You need to have a CFO or, you know, a controller, if you're going to do this kind of stuff. So if your company has outsourced accounting, which is fine in the early days, and you don't have the discipline internally, and you're not making projections, that's a sign you're not ready for this kind of thing. If you Mm -hmm. have a great internal team for accounting, or, you know, a really great executives who understand this stuff, and you're doing projections, and you have predictable revenue, this stuff is kind of essential in the mix, you'll see this, you know, Amazon, or Google will do a bond, and you're like, Wait a second, they have a hundred million billion in cash. And why are they doing a bond for, you know, some solar farm or a building? It's like, well, because they can. There was some right. point where Amazon started doing corporate bonds. Remember that like five years ago? I it do was crazy. Sort of remember that? Everybody they, wants like, to be in financial tools. Yeah. I was like, why are they doing a billion-dollar bond? It was like, well, because they're getting it for 2%, 1%, or something insane. It's just the CFO and their team looked at it and were like, free money, low makes sense. Let's take advantage of this debt right. facility it, it, we're making more money over here we get to spread whatever it is so you have it to is, be it is very true
1: that in the business world writ large there is this kind of maxim like as a as an individual in the world you know we are conditioned to have some fear of debt unless mm-hmm. you're an american in which you're like i live in credit card debt i don't know eventually i'll die and i won't have to pay but like some debt is good some kinds of debt are good because they mean that you don't have to spend your own money yeah. when you can get access to money cheaply and this no. is sort of like a version of that but it sounds like it is something just to sort of tie it all together if a company comes to you and they have lots of different kinds of finance mechanisms it is something to just pay attention to
0: yeah it's everything is contextual mm-hmm. when we're talking about startups and assessing the viability of a startup the financial viability of a startup that is profitable. Is different than one that's burning 250k a month if you're burning 250k a month and you're adding three million dollars in venture debt and you've got two million dollars in cash left and you're going to be out of money in eight months and you're going to have to hit that and you don't have product market fit like oh my lord i've seen right. people without product market fit oh, come to me and be like hey we want to add a million dollars in venture debt And i'm like okay before we do any of that can everybody just stay focused on product market fit right right so you know, it's, it's at what stage do you add the stuff? And at some stages, it's brilliant and efficient and a sophisticated thing to do. And other times, it's too early. So you need to have the right counsel around you to do this, whether it's attorneys, accountants, CFOs, outsourced CFOs. And if you're a first-time founder, get help. Talk to your mm-hmm. board members. Talk to multiple board members. Talk to multiple banks. Talk to multiple accountants and tax specialists and make sure you have good projections. And I, I always like to be conservative. Some people like to be aggressive. They like to maximize how much of a home they buy. They like to maximize their mortgage. Remember those super jumbo mortgages? Oh, yeah. You can look at, like, are mortgages a bad thing? If I asked you that, you'd be like, well, it's contextual. Like, how big is your mortgage compared to your savings and your revenue and your salary and your income? And then how secure is your income? Have you been at the same company and you know for 12 years and your income is kind of guaranteed or... Are you like, uh, you know, have spiky income because you mm-hmm. work as a consultant. So you got to figure all that all out. Love it.
1: Love it. See, and even founders got a little VC Sunday school there today.
0: Ah, Right. It's for everybody. That's for everybody on the cap table. Yep. All right. Let's go to your amazing interview this week in climate startups. Who did you interview this week? And what are they doing to put a dent in the universe, Molly? I know. Oh God, that's
1: such a that's such a great way to put it. This job is mm. so hopeful. Yes, be um, hopeful. Very, it's good. You're allowed yeah, to be. Like we just get to be so positive. Um, this week in climate startups, we have blah, 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 a startup. Yes,
0: <laughs> great. With a lot of capital mm. allocators there for a while.
1: Exactly. And this is a really interesting interview, and it gets to exactly how broad the universe of climate tech startups can be. This is I talked with Mitchell Hora of Continuum Ag. Mitchell mm. is like a multi generation farmer. Himself. Our first call was like him in his big pickup in Iowa driving through a snowstorm, just checking in on what's up with Continuum Ag. And basically, what the company does is help farmers and agriculture companies quantify and improve their soil health. They have a tool called Topsoil, mm-hmm. which helps farmers profit from their environmental outcomes like carbon sequestration, but ah. also helps them understand the health of their soil so that they can maximize the amount of money. That they're making from their crops, like grow better crops, make more money. And then also, you know, their big long-term play is to get into this big carbon sequestration market mm. where you can get paid as a farmer for having healthy, happy, rich black soil that actually like ah. sucks
0: up and
1: sequesters carbon.
0: So this would be a win-win-win. Topsoil win, wins, win, win. carbon sequestration companies, people who need to do carb- carbon sequestration and buy those credits win and the farmer wins. Uh, yeah, win win win. I love it. Win, All win, right, win. let's go on to the interview. Here is a problem a lot of startups face: they need cybersecurity, but they don't have the staff to implement it or manage it well. If your startup is overwhelmed with thousands of different services and you're looking for a simple and cost-effective starting point, CyberTar makes cybersecurity accessible and effortless for startups and SMBs. They have an all-inclusive subscription that you can cancel at any time. Syvatar provides the following, security staff, a proven process, and solutions for your business so you can close more deals and get compliant faster and gain customer trust. Cyvatar helps startups get secure in 60 days or less. Again, it's an all-inclusive, fully managed cybersecurity as a service a free platform to analyze and report on your security investment. They are a preventative service, not a reactionary one. This means they find the problems before they happen, not after. You can use Cyvatar's freemium version right now at no cost. But if you want to upgrade, you can get your first 2 months free at cyvatar.ai/twist. Let me spell that for you. C-Y-V-A-T-A-R.ai/twist for 2 months free. Welcome to the family, Cyvatar.
1: Mitchell Hora is founder and CEO of Continuum at Continuum Ag on Twitter, Continuum underscore Ag.
3: Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but let's dig in.
1: (laughs) Well, I I think it should be like pretty much in your wheelhouse because my first question to you is going to be, what does Continuum do? (laughs)
3: I think I can handle that one. Not so a trick question. Not a gotcha. I can, I can, yeah, I can handle that one. So yeah, Continuum Ag is a soil health data intelligence company, and we built the first soil health data software, which basically just means we've got a new tool that we built the software around, and that tool is called the Haney Soil Health Test, developed by a USDA soil scientist. It's been out for a long time, but we built the software to be able to help farmers to actually utilize the test to deploy precision ag and make better decisions. Now we've been able to expand the business to be more holistic around regenerative management um, and fitting into these new carbon markets and sustainability initiatives and all the buzz all the hype around uh, farmers you know now being able to utilize better more sustainable farming practices to not only provide the feed and fuel and fiber for the world but offset the global carbon footprint and improve water quality and improve nutrient density and lots of other things that farmers are now in the spotlight for being able to bring to the table. So we just help farmers uh, enable farmers to do it. Uh, Current footprint is 38 states and 15 countries as we review this today. And uh, current team is at 24 people. So it's been a heck of a journey. And uh, but running it all from a small town, Southeast Iowa. Uh, I'm also seventh generation on my family's farm here too.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is so much to unpack there for... You know, considering the fact that this is This Week in Climate Startups, we're talking to an investor audience and a startup audience who maybe did not consider soil health, first of all, the the foundation of a hypergrowth startup, which is almost how you have described it, but as something that is so key and can be measured in such a high tech way. Let's like go all the way to basics. Why does soil health matter?
3: It's a great question soil health um i got exposed to that in 2015 this whole concept mm-hmm. but on the farm you know we never called it soil health it's kind of a newer term but we've been using no till since 1978 and cover crops since 2013 which are these conservation practices and the basics of these soil health systems the key is that soil health is a overall concept an overall approach to farming that as a, just by happenstance, it creates all these great environmental outcomes. So what do we mean by soil health? Soil health, in my definition, is that we're creating soil balance. Farmers for a long time have focused on their soil chemistry and their soil physics, meaning how much fertilizer do I need? How do Mm -hmm. I improve water management with field tile and things like that? Um, But now soil health brings about hey, the soil is alive, and that in one teaspoon of healthy soil, there's more microbes than there are people on the earth. And we can use those 8 billion microbes per tablespoon to help us to be more profitable and to help us to influence those chemical and physical properties. But it's the biology that's driving it. And soil health is the understanding that we have to create balance in the chemical, physical, and most importantly, the biological components of the soil and we do that by implementing the soil health principles which is to keep armor on the soil keep residue and keep material on the soil surface mm-hmm. we need to minimize disturbance both physically with tillage and minimize tillage and both and chemistry minimize the chemical disturbance with pesticides and too much fertilizers and things like that we need to keep living roots at all times meaning have per- more perennial crops that are alive all the time or have cover crops out there which is the big thing that that we've pushed on and and i mentioned it before that cover crops are a a typically grass or other species of crops that are growing over the winter time between our cash crops and kind of in the off season Mm -hmm. the fourth soil health principle is that we have to implement more diversity and more diversity of species meaning grasses with legumes with forbs with brassicas, there's lots of different stuff and it's emulating the natural biological processes of Mother Nature and the diverse tall grass prairies that made my soil in Iowa here, uh, you know, some of the best soils in the world. And then the fifth principle is, wherever we can we want to integrate livestock that again mimics Mother Nature, that there used to be the buffalo and all these critters running around you know, depositing their manure and urine and stuff like that, that Mm -hmm. we want to emulate that as much as we can Um, But the sixth principle then being you've got to do all these things within your context. And that's really important here that as the government gets involved and as consumers and supply chain organizations and more and more investor money, you've got to enable the farmers to make the right decisions for their local family farm. And at Continuum Ag, we've got the software tools and the digital enablement to be able to make it happen and focus on the farmers got to be profitable. As family farms, we're running businesses out here. My family has been farming this area for 150 years and they've been able to do that through the great depression and through the farm crisis of the eighties and all this stuff Been able to do it because we're running a business. Mm -hmm. Now it's a family farm. It's a lifestyle, but we've got to be running a business here too. And now as we implement a more regenerative way of farming, a more sustainable way of farming, that's great. It's got all these environmental outcomes. It's great for the consumer. It's great for the environment. It's great for all these things, but it's also has to be great. For that farmer's bottom line and their right, profits, and right. that's what we focus on.
1: So again, back to basics: What happens when soil isn't healthy? Obviously, I would assume it means your crops don't grow. But no, there's your also crops like can a, still
3: grow, okay, but it yeah. just takes a lot of forcing it to happen. Okay, that soil is sick. Okay, just like humans. Okay, so I relate all this stuff back to human health. If you have a human that you know eat doesn't eat right, doesn't work out, um, you know maybe drinks too much smokes too much, whatever it may be, they can get, they get sick a lot of times and they're mm-hmm. unhealthy and their body's not working the right way. And, and, uh, if we're not eating the right things and stuff or not being healthy, we have to offset that with medicine or with, you know, and that's why in America, you know, we spend all this money on the, uh, healthcare industry and on, you know, with big pharma and stuff that it's because we're not getting the natural nutrition and balancing our diets and taking care of ourselves the way that we're supposed to right and uh same thing for the soil if and then not healthy chemicals
1: and fertilizers that end
3: up in runoff and are really bad for us and that's exactly it more yep. chemical more fertilizer to solve the symptoms and continue to drive the only driver of success on the farm right now is yield so it's tossed more at it to get more yield same thing on the human health you know. Uh, I want to be more awake in the morning. We'll drink more caffeine, you know, when really it should be. No, you need to sleep the right way, and eat the right foods and take care of yourself. And then you don't be come okay. for my
1: coffee, Mitchell. Don't no, do I it. I still
3: love coffee, too. I mean, I'm not going to from it, but I should also, you know, I should sleep better and work it. out better. And yeah, you know, it's the same kind of concepts here. But in in ag, in order to get away from those things, we have to wean it off, just like on us. If we went cold turkey and didn't drink coffee in the morning, it wouldn't be great. At least for the first couple of weeks, it would really, it would really suck. But if you weaned yourself off of it and were to replace that with better systems, it'd be better. It'd be a Mm -hmm. a more holistic process, but it might take a little while to be able to do it. Going cold turkey can be really hard. Same thing for sustainable agriculture that we're dealing with a biological process just like us. And it's our, we can blame it on our microbes. Okay. So the human body is 10 trillion cells microbe. Or sorry, 10 trillion cells human, 90 trillion cells microbe. What? So you're not addicted to coffee. I'm not addicted to coffee. Our microbes are addicted to coffee. Those little bastards. I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's just mind blowing to me though, that the human body is, and I'm not a, I'm not a PhD scientist on human microbiome, but my understanding and what I've learned is that the human body is 10 trillion cells human, 90 trillion cells microbe.
0: Listen, if you're a high performing founder or operator, you need to make sure you can take care of your health and wellness. I do I try to get great sleep, I try to eat healthy, you know, all those important things. And that's where Thorne can help you. Thorne is a health and tech company that offers at home tests, which identify where you need the most care. They offer things like a gut test that analyzes your gut microbiome, and a stress test that measures your stress hormone fluctuations. These tests will help you eliminate the guesswork for good health by providing personalized steps for how to eat how to exercise and what supplements you should take then they have a range of multivitamins and supplements that you can subscribe to again this is personalized health and wellness and Thorne is totally vertically integrated so you're not dealing with anyone in the middle. Plus, Thorne is the only supplement brand to collaborate with the Mayo Clinic, according to Thorne. For a better approach to wellness, head to Thorn.com slash U slash twist today. Once again, T-H-O-R-N-E.com slash the letter U slash T W I S T today. Okay, well, before I go all the
1: way down that rabbit hole, let's let's do a contrast and compare. So what happens when the soil is bad? We've discussed what happens when it's good? And can you draw that bright line to why that's more sustainable and better for the climate?
3: Yeah. So when it's bad, it's fragile. We got to put in a lot of inputs and then we're really susceptible to weather issues. And that's becoming obviously more and more prevalent. So, But when when the soil is healthy and when it's good, we have a lot more nutrient cycling and we don't need to apply as much fertilizer because it's naturally more readily available. We're able to infiltrate water and not have flooding. We're able to Hold on to the water that we do get because we have better organic matter, which a big portion of organic matter is carbon. 58% of organic matter is carbon. So the more carbon we get in, the more water we can hold. More balanced soil creates a healthier crop, a more nutritious crop, and more nutritious product going into the environment. It's it's the whole what we learned in what, like first or second grade, that you are what you eat. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing there, but it's reverse engineering it that, okay, the plant or the animals are eating plants or humans are eating plants and plants are getting their nutrition out of the soil. And if it's a diverse, healthy, balanced diet that they're getting out of the soil, they're going to be healthier and more balanced as well. Less disease, less insect pressure, less issues. So we just really need to enable that. On our farm, how that's translated is that we've decreased our synthetic fertilizer by 45%. Over the last three years, four years, we're still weaning off okay we're a very conventional farm still for the general generally still conventional so we've cut our synthetics by 45 percent, we've cut our pesticides by 75 percent we've been able to improve our organic matter our car- our organic matter by 1.4 percent and therefore I'm sequestering carbon currently at a rate of about 4.7 tons per acre per year in the upper profile of my soil. And then my water infiltration, the average water infiltration across the country is about a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. And we get plenty of rains that are heavier than a half an inch per hour. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have a lot of flooding issues and erosion and things like that. On our farm, we can infiltrate four inches of rainfall in less than five minutes. Wow. Yeah. Now we don't have flooding. I don't need the federal crop insurance at the level that I did before. That's all taxpayer funded. I don't need, Um, I'm more resilient against these weather concerns because I've got a healthy functioning soil ecosystem.
1: Yep. All right. Now for our third question, how do you translate all of that, right? The difference between bad soil and good soil and the importance of having that good soil and high quality soil into a tech business.
3: (laughs) Because it's how do I enable the natural system to make money? Yep. That's what it has to boil down to that. Uh, how I started it all out was the how we were how we were managing our soils before with precision ag and some of the tools that were available they just weren't really making sense for our farm the recommendations that Dad was getting back he was frustrated with didn't th- he was confused of why are we doing some of these things that we're doing and at that point we were using some no till we weren't really into cover crops yet but our soils were just a little bit different than maybe the norm. Then, especially when we got into cover crops, the soil testing that farmers typically do today and that big ag does today, the soil testing does not work. It's mm. designed for chemistry, d- designed for those soils that function solely based off of the fertilizer that we input. Same thing on like a lot of the, the medical industry and stuff too, like looking at utilizing food as medicine and more holistic medicine stuff, which I don't know anything about. I never go to the doctor and so I can't talk to that at all, <laughs> but, uh, Sounds like my farmer family. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's the same thing, you know, for the, on the soil side. But anyway, so we, I got connected with this Haney soil health test, which allowed us to quantify biology, quantify the organic nutrients, the naturally available and the biologically derived nutrients. We can quantify those things now. And that's why we're able to utilize the data to cut back on our need for synthetics Mm -hmm. and put more dollars to our bottom line. So now this past year was our most profitable year ever. And uh, we're doing it without government subsidies, without handouts, doing yeah. it all on our own and being more resilient, which is so enabling for a farmer that often just feels stuck in the current rut of the system. But when you're better enabled with a, a light at the end of the tunnel and a, a light shining ahead that, hey, we can, there's a better way here. Um, when you're enabled to make better decisions, it's it's really empowering. So, uh, And we just built the software to scale that. That's yeah. all we did at Continuum, you know, and it's called Topsoil. It's an online database that, um, you know, houses that farmer data to enable them to make better decisions and put dollars in their family farm pocket. So at
1: what point did you turn this into a business and build this software?
3: Yeah, so I started the company in 2015 doing direct-to-farmer agronomy consulting, mm-hmm. mostly in southeast Iowa. So it was a service business at the beginning. Yeah. Direct-to-farmer uh not very scalable except for hiring more people to create more hours in a day. Consulting. Um in late 2019 or so is when we were like, okay, we need to better connect with our own customers and we need to create better, more scalable systems. And that's when we started building the software to manage the data. Um, but really at that point, it was still just me connecting with my my farmers. It wasn't supposed to be this big global, you know, behemoth that we now want it to be. Um but I got connected. Uh, we, we raised venture capital for the first time in early 2020. Mm-hmm. And I went through the Ag Launch Accelerator down in Memphis, which was really that springboard that we needed to get us into um, moving away from just being a direct-to-farmer consulting company and moving into the actual, hey, we're a tech company. Mm-hmm. So that was early 2020, right before COVID. and uh, And then we brought in a little bit of venture capital then. And uh, we've worked with two Iowa uh, venture capital groups, and I've got an angel investor in Indiana, and then we've got the the folks at Ag Launch. Um, and then in early 2021 or mid 2021, uh, we raised another small round. We brought in one new venture capital group out of Chicago, and um, been able to just continue to really build everything though based on revenue. And so it's been it's been a conglomeration of. You know, building software and scaling more quickly, utilizing the little bit of venture capital that we've raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but doing this really focused on what's going to actually bring value to the customer and how do we define that value and build it based on driving revenue. And right now, our average farmer customer is spending $10 an acre, 10 to $15 an acre. And our average value return last fall was $106.24 an acre. Wow. So spend ten to fifteen to make one hundred and six like that. That's huge. And our overall value, our overall value created for our customer base last year, twenty twenty one was one point eight million. Bottom line, that's after paying us. So one point eight million returned to those farms, and we're super early, very small. Um, so obviously very proud of that, and we want to keep scaling it because more people need. When farmers have money in their pocket, they invest it back in their family farms and better technology. In in being more resilient, but they also put money in their rural schools and their community, their church, things like that. Like That's what I care about is revitalizing that and strengthening those family farms so that they're in a position to be successful both now and in the long term.
1: How does the product work on the customer side? Yes,
3: yeah, so we have two key products. We have a regen roadmap, which enables farmers to quantify their current baseline, quantify point A. Identify point B. What's the goal? And we help them to get there. It's five dollars per acre per year, essentially subscription model to the software. And uh, that just be like you're hiring that health coach. And first thing they do is say, okay, well, let's check the vitals, let's check our weight, let's check our body mass index. That's what we do on day one. And then we say, okay, what's our goal and what's our time frame? And then we put together the plan to get there. And we provide um, ongoing check ins and our processes to enable that farmer to get there and make sure that we're focused on the, the risk and focused on the profitability.
1: Yep. And then does that plug into existing measurement tools, like existing IOT systems? I know there are some very and advanced tools tool, for though, measuring for, health.
3: A lot of it for the, for right now, you know, it's our tool because the, the systems that we're going out there and measuring, which is our second business model, which is okay. Do we, do they have the existing data already for us to more holistically define that baseline or do we need to go to their farms and gather new data, especially this soil health data that not yeah. very many farms have? We charge an average of ten dollars an acre for that and uh and is that hardware we built the system to bring it all in nope so we we collect the soil there's some hardware that are new sensors and things like that, but today, the current system is you go to the field, collect soil, mail it to a lab that has the hardware, and we have all the data infrastructure to communicate with the lab and to communicate that lab data back to the farmer and mm-hmm. back into their current decision-making process.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So you're not in the hardware business. You are in the data collection Software. business. And that literally is like, examine the dirt. We're the hub of the data. I know so it's not it's, cool to call it dirt, the soil.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The dirt in the, in the soil. But yeah, I mean, dirt is dead. Soil is alive. A lot of people. Yeah. They're yep. with dirt right now. We got to make it passed. alive. I,
1: I just got a bunch of tweets just for saying that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's perfect. <laughs> That's perfect. And, uh, but it's, it's being able to enable that. And I think what's really interesting is, is the amount of farms that are coming to the table now wanting to go and get into this. Yeah. Um, I, don't have, I don't know what the most recent data is, but last that I've heard, across the U.S., there's only 4% of farms that are using cover crops, which is kind of the key that you've got to get to to really get on this regenerative path. There's 30-some percent that are no-till only 4% using cover crops.
0: Wow!
3: And so we have 96% of the farms that really need our help to get going. And even a lot of the farms that are the early adopters that have been doing these things, like my farm, we've screwed up a lot of stuff. We need to tell that story as well. So we need our data to be better enabled to communicate that story to the consumer, to the taxpayer, into the supply chain, wherever it needs to go. And uh, we need to be more thoughtful and, and really hone in on what is our goal and how do we push further and how do we get there? But especially these later adopters and big farms and stuff like that, mm-hmm. they can't be as risky as a small farm like mine that we can be nimble and we can experiment, we can try new things. So now we're really at that point where those 96% of farms that need to figure this out, uh, they've got to have success in day one. Mm-hmm. And that's what we enable.
1: So what does that sort of stair step look like? Because like you said, you don't, if you've got something that's working, even if it's not working optimally, you don't want to mess with it. Like how hard is it to
3: get farmers to adopt new tech? It's been really, really interesting, especially over the last 18 months, even. Uh, And and the key thing for us is we're not necessarily asking them to make a major tech play Mm -hmm. because a lot of the data that we're helping them collect, it's already for the most part out there, we're just pulling it all together into our system where we can actually holistically help them to utilize the data. Right now, ag data is super fragmented. We've got to be able to pull it together to number one, make better agronomic decisions, but also for this data-driven supply chain and for the blockchain enablement of the future and all this, we've got to have our data more cleaned up. we got to have our ducks in a row. Um, But the biggest thing on these farms has been a change of mindset on how they are approaching farming. And that understanding that the soil is alive, Mm -hmm. and that if we enable Mother Nature to do her thing, that we're going to be more profitable. And that's been a major, long, long journey here. That I mean, on our farm, we started doing no till in 78. And, you know, there it's been a 40 some year journey of being able to really get to this point where we are now. Now, we really didn't crank it up until 2016, even 2017, 2018. So the major gains have been just in the last couple of years. Now that we've got the data to be able to understand what do we actually got to do to make better decisions and we're connected and learning from others and, and uh, social media and stuff enables that. But, um, that farmer mindset is what has to change. But Mm -hmm. what's been really interesting to me is getting to those later adopters, getting to that next wave of folks on the adoption curve that are saying, okay, Hey, I see it. I, I know the writing's on the wall. The government's putting a bunch of money to this. The financial sector is saying we got to be carbon neutral. All this stuff, the money that wants to go into this is crazy. Hmm. And right now, though, it's not necessarily flowing to the farm. And it really is not enabled. Like The farm is not enabled to really make money in this right now. Hmm. The money is sitting on the sideline waiting to get in. Um, but how they want to participate, how they want their money to go in, namely via carbon credits, it's not, it's not ready help. yet. It's not right. there. It can help. It's so a wait. cherry on top for the farmers, but that floodgate is not open. And farmers are really very, very few have been paid. Very few have been paid anything significantly. Um, I w- hold on. I want to untangle this yeah. a little bit because
1: now you're talking about carbon markets, right? You're saying yeah. that if farmers large scale implement these changes and their farms do become carbon sinks, carbon oh. sequestration mechanisms that they could get paid for that. So there's like a double benefit to the farmer who really goes all the way. They have 108% improved crop yield and they can potentially sell carbon credits as
3: offsets. So Long-term sell, I know. I just want to like draw that line about what we're talking about here. Well, but the, so the long-term, okay, so it's, it's a really good point and we do need to break it down a little bit. Okay, so they're a part of what's driving the farmers to start, calling me more rapidly is they're saying, Hey, there's these carbon programs and all this money. And I want to make sure that I get a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. And right now the carbon programs, though, they have really in my take, which is I'm too aggressive at saying it, but I'm going to say it anyway, that these carbon programs are privatized cost share. They yep. don't really have anything to do with your carbon because the data and the tools behind these markets were not designed for these multi potentially multi-trillion dollar markets. They're not designed for that. Yeah. They were academic tools designed for some of these research plots and stuff and the data behind them is not robust enough. It's not updated and we need a, it needs a lot of work. What we have to do is create more transparency for the farmer to be able to deploy the right data and collect the right information to quantify their actual carbon footprint. Today, I'm so... Super deep into this, probably deeper than just about any other farmer in the country, and I have no idea what my carbon footprint is today
1: because hmm. those yeah. systems
3: are not there and not enabled for me to actually define my my carbon footprint. So what the markets are doing today is they're saying, well, those farms that are using tillage and that aren't using cover crops and that are using all this synthetic fertilizer, we'll just pay you to decrease tillage, add cover crops, reduce fertilizer because those things help to decrease your carbon footprint, and we'll pay you in the form of a carbon credit, um, which on some of the registries, nobody's actually gotten a verified, a registry verified carbon credit. Nobody's been able to do that. Nori has been able to get credits verified through their system. But as far as with Vera, gold standard, uh climate action reserve, nobody's actually created a verified carbon credit yet. -hmm. And uh, so that's what I mean by the floodgates really are not Mm -hmm. there. Right. And for the most part, though, the issue is that it's not about your actual carbon footprint. It's about here's some practices that you can change, which hopefully help with carbon. Yeah. But it basically incentivizes people to check the box, do the bare minimum, because the payments are not enough, and the payments are just based on make as minimal of a change and spend as little money as you can, because you're getting paid just a couple bucks that don't pay for the change in practices but it's a little bit of a carrot uh, yeah. that hopefully can get people to to change a little bit um so, and then we're and then we're involved and we're helping those farmers to actually make the change which is where we want to actually be which the real money is in actually understanding these principles of soil health and you know like I showed we our average customer last year saw a return of $106 an acre That's real money. That's way better than 10 or 15 or maybe 20 bucks an acre. You're going to get on a carbon market Um, and can be much more long-term sustainable.
1: Well, and also I would imagine that for you that builds a business that isn't necessarily, you know, one of the, the big fear points around investing in clean tech and ag tech after the kind of collapse of like renewable energy investments in mm -hmm. the mid 2000s was this, this fear that it was policy dependent. Yeah, And it sounds like what you're saying is we're building a a business that is not policy dependent because obviously every farmer wants to have higher yield and make more money off of their farm. That seems like a really easy sell. And PS bonus, when this all gets figured out, there's an added
3: value for you. Yeah. I mean, I hope it all gets figured out because I'm going to make a lot of money and my farmers are going to make a lot of money (laughs) if it does get figured out. And and, uh, And we're really pushing on that. You know, the USDA has deployed... A new grant, um, offering for a billion dollars worth of grants to help to figure out climate smart commodities. We're applying for, uh, for one of those grants and we're involved. You know, we want a, a lot of our partners and stuff to be able to, to get some of those dollars too. So we can deploy those two, uh, family farms and, and to the right folks that can really help to make this happen and not, you know, take it from being academic and put it into practice with the right farmers that are really doing it. So, so that's what we're pushing on. But yeah, I mean, overall, I think that's where I'm just seeing the just normal farmer coming to us saying, Hey, I need to position myself to make more money no matter what, no matter what's happening in DC, no matter what these companies are wanting. But that, but that the writing's on the wall that, Hey, there's a better path of farming and it's reducing tillage and using cover crops and using biology to help us to be more profitable and to feed the world better quality. And yeah, it also just by happenstance is done with a lower carbon footprint and better for water quality and better for the consumer. And that's great. And they're going to want us to do it more and more. So let's get in position uh, to capture as much of that opportunity as we can and get ahead of the curve um, to be in the right position.
1: So what do you say to, in our last minutes here, what do you say to investors and potential founders who might be scared off by this segment? You know,
3: I think this is a one of the hottest places that you can get into, but especially on the investment side, hey, this is early. Mm-hmm. there's opportunity to get in early, know that hey, this is not fully developed like I've got some of these groups that I work with that would love to put in hundreds of millions you know into the billions of dollars towards this kind of stuff that's not really there yet so help us to get this going on an earlier standpoint so we can get to that point where we can deploy real money and really be able to get this to scale. So at this point, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of need for better enabled data and for these uh, the calculation stuff that we're building. We need sensors and better technology for verification and for easier, uh, more, um, more cost-effective quantification. There's some need for that. There's some pretty cool tech companies and some of our buddies and stuff that are building startups and stuff in that space. Um, and yeah, I mean, agriculture being part of the solution here is is a good spot to be in. And um, everyone's got to eat. It's a long-term kind of play here. And we've got to be able to feed people in a more regenerative manner. Um, agriculture today is 10 to 12% of the U.S.'s carbon footprint. But it's one of the few sectors that has the ability To actually be carbon negative, to offset its own carbon footprint plus that of others. That's very exciting, but we got a long way to go. And in order to make it actually happen, we've got to enable the farmers to understand their actual impact and their actual goals and stuff. Okay. So, farm US farmers are the best in the world because we have, we know what the scoreboard is and we know how to make yield. And that's been the driver of success has been yield. And there's TV shows about it. There's contests about it. There's tons and tons of money going into chasing yield. Until we can enable farmers to quantify their carbon impact and be paid based on optimizing their carbon impact, until we can enable that to happen, this isn't going to work. Yeah. We've got to enable farmers to be creative, get them paid based on innovation. When that happens, we're so competitive as, as farmers and we want to win and we want to have bragging rights at the coffee shop and stuff so much that we'll do it. And, and if we can be enabled with being rewarded based on those outcomes, this is going to blow up and it's really going to be able to go and farmers are in the right position to make it work, but we've got to enable the farmers to be paid based on innovation. They have to be able to choose how far they want to go and how fast we can't do it with regulation or else all it's going to do is hurt small family farms and, Mm. and, and, uh, and we've got to be able to make sure that the farmers are getting the right advice so that they don't chase the carrot and go broke doing it.
1: Mitchell, where can people find you? Because you are not just a farmer and a startup founder, which are both really hard and extremely time-consuming jobs. You're also a podcaster and evangelist.
3: Yeah, we've got the podcast stuff. So the Fieldwork podcast is produced by American Public Media. It's a really good one, all on sustainable ag. The Topsoil podcast is my um, personal podcast. Um, and then all over social media at continuum ag, um, continuum underscore ag on Twitter, continuum.ag is our website, topsoil.ag is our software and it's free to, to check it out. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty easy to find, uh, <laughs> through uh, looking at me or, or uh, Continuum. But continuum, yeah. but I, I mean, I think it's key that my perspective in this is really unique that I do it on my own farm and I own farmland and I'm, I'm actively doing it on the farm. I'm an agronomist helping other farmers do it. I'm a tech entrepreneur helping other consultants globally do it. Then I'm involved in the registries and that wrote the rules. Mm-hmm. I'm involved in the policy side. I'm involved in the very large companies and the, the fortune 100 side that's, you know, helping to drive all this. And, uh, and so I understand why things are the way that they are, but I also understand a brighter future is what's needed. And, and, uh, yeah, definitely encourage everyone to, uh, Hop on board and uh, let's go do this.
1: Mitchell, as we like to say in my family, getting after it. Mitchell Hora, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it. I love that. (laughs) Thanks. Hey,
0: everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS Syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS saAS to apply to raise from the SAS syndicate and you can join Jason syndicate of over nine thousand accredited investors at the syndicate.com producer Justin here no cool startup.
2: Day.com. Our next event is on April 27th.
0: And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Sacca, then head to angel.university to apply. The 4-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university/charity.